Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine and creator of drjockers.com, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. This podcast is sponsored by my friends over at ChopC60.com. If you haven't heard of Carbon 60 or otherwise called C60 before, it is a powerful Nobel Prize winning antioxidant that helps to optimize mitochondrial function, fights inflammation, and neutralizes toxic free radicals. I'm a huge fan of using C60 in conjunction with a healthy lifestyle to support your immune system, help your body detox, and increase energy and mental clarity. If you are over the age of 40 and you'd like to kick fatigue and brain fog to the curb this year, visit shopc60.com and use the coupon code JOCKERS for 15% off your first order and start taking back control over your health today. The products I use, I use their C60 in organic, MCT coconut oil. They have it in various different flavors. They also have sugar-free gummies that are made with allulose and monk fruit. They also have carbon-60 and organic avocado and extra virgin olive oil. When it's combined with these fats, it absorbs more effectively. And carbon-60 is great as a natural energizing tool because it really helps your mitochondria optimize your energy production. Now, if you take it late at night, for some individuals, it may seem a little bit stimulating. So that's why we recommend taking it earlier in the day, and it will give you that great energy, that great great mental clarity that you want all day long. It will help reduce the effects of oxidative stress and aging and really help you thrive. So again, guys, go to shopc60.com. Use the coupon code JOCKERS to save 15% off your first order and start taking back control of your health today. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we are talking about one of my favorite topics, intermittent fasting, and in particular, how intermittent fasting impacts female hormones and really the best strategies for women to take when it comes to intermittent fasting. And so my guest is Cynthia Turlow. She is a nurse practitioner, author of the best-selling book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation. She is a two-time TEDx speaker with her second talk having more than 14 million views. And she's the host of the popular Everyday Wellness podcast. She has over 20 years experience in health and wellness. And she's a globally recognized expert in intermittent fasting and women's health. And she's been featured on ABC, Fox 5, all different types of media. Her mission is to educate women on the benefits of intermittent fasting and overall holistic health and wellness so they feel empowered to live their most optimal lives. And in this interview, we talk about how women should approach fasting when it comes to uh, you know, their menstrual cycle, when it comes to being in perimenopause, menopause, and how they can improve their insulin sensitivity throughout their cycle. So you guys are in for a treat here. If you've not left us a five-star review, now is the time to do that. If you are getting value from my podcast, please take a moment, just leave us a five-star review. That really helps us reach more people and impact more lives with this message. Thank you so much for doing that. And let's go into the show. Well, Cynthia, always great to connect. Always uh, enjoy our conversations. You and I are both 
really passionate about intermittent fasting. We've seen it transform our lives and so many of our, our, our people in our community and people that we've worked with. And I'm excited about this conversation because, you know, there's a lot of thoughts out there when it comes to intermittent fasting for women. Some people like you have seen really good results, you know, and you have people in your community have seen really good results, but there's a lot of people that kind of just, maybe they've had the bad results or they've heard from other people that fasting is a stress and stress, you know, obviously too much stress is bad for our body. And so they say, well, definitely need to stay away from fasting. So I'd love to be able to, you know, obviously dive into that and, um, you know, go through exactly what benefits they can get from fasting, but also how to tailor it based on, you know, where they're at with their menstrual cycle or where they're at in life in general, perimenopause, menopause, and how we can piece all this together. Yeah. And I, I think, and I appreciate and value our friendship and our professional um, interactions because there is so much good that comes from eating less often but in our kind of harried lifestyles, and if we're listening to what most healthcare professionals are telling our patients, we're telling them to eat frequently to stoke their metabolism, and we're really in a metabolic health crisis. And so when I talk to women in particular about intermittent fasting, it's with the understanding and the context of there's a time to fast and there's a time not to fast. There's a time to eat and there's a time not to eat. And so a great deal of the education process is talking about the role of hormesis or beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time. And that could look very different for a 30-year-old woman who's still in her peak fertile years, who's lean, versus a 30-year-old woman who is obese, has polycystic ovarian syndrome, and very likely could benefit from targeted cyclical fasting versus that lean woman that may really not want to do that all that often, but 12 hours of digestive rest. And this is really the mainstay for everyone. Every adult should be able to go 12 to 13 hours without eating. And that should really be a benchmark from which we really use a starting point. So when we're talking to women, it's really focusing in on what life stage are you in? Are you still in your peak fertile years? And I kind of identify that as 35 and under. Are you in perimenopause, the 10 to 15 years preceding menopause, or are you in menopause, 12 months without a menstrual cycle? And depending on where you are in time and space allows us to have a conversation around your menstrual cycle. Like when in your menstrual cycle should you fast? When should you not fast and just do 12 hours of digestive rest? For women that are in perimenopause and menopause, understanding that our bodies become less stress resilient and why it is so critically important to understand I don't want any perimenopausal or menopausal woman fasting if they can't sleep well. You know, sleep is foundational to our health. If you look at all the research that's being done, and I'm in the midst of doing a sleep webinar, I'm writing copy for a sleep webinar, looking at the research and understanding that getting less than six hours a night of sleep, really aiming for seven to eight, but less than six, you're putting yourself at risk for developing insulin resistance dysregulation and key satiety and appetite hormones like leptin and ghrelin. We know that it sets you up for not making good food choices the following day. And this is why I really start from a foundational perspective about sleep and stress and nutrition and also exercise as it pertains to the women in middle age. So under those contacts and under those guises, women can absolutely fast. There are a few exceptions and, and the few exceptions I think are pretty reasonable but understanding that the benefits from intermittent fasting can absolutely align with women's physiology 
and understanding that our physiology is different than men. So men and menopausal women, I think, really have the easiest time with fasting. It's women that are in between peak fertile years, perimenopause, that we have to take into account our menstrual cycles. And if we're able to do that and able to understand when we should fast and when we should not fast, the types of foods we should be eating, depending on where we are in our cycle, the types of exercise we should be engaging in, then we can have tremendous fun and also success with fasting. When I think about the benefits of fasting, um, first and foremost, I think a great deal about, you know, we're talking about this metabolic health crisis, helping un- individuals understand that one of the key benefits is lowering inflammation. Inflammation is at the basis of every chronic disease state that we see, hypertension, dyslipidemias, um, you know, cognitive disorders, certain types of cancers, obviously insulin resistance, which is at the basis of a lot of these issues, um, also reduction in oxidative stress, also improvement in biophysical markers, so blood pressure, lipids, et cetera. Um, also understanding that when we are in a fasted state and we get to a point where our body is able to effectively use different types of fuel substrates, so fatty acids, glycogen, um, understanding that as our bodies become more metabolically flexible, able to use either, or there's several different forms of fuel substrates, but we'll just focus on those two, mm-hmm. that it can improve brain health. It can improve cognition. We can have more energy. And I can't think of anyone listening that isn't looking to have clearer thinking, have more energy, to not be focused on, you know, when's your next snack or mini meal, because that's the misinformation we were giving patients for so many years. And then thinking about other types of benefits, perhaps the ones that aren't as well-known, thinking about autophagy. Obviously, the longer you're in a fasted state, the more likely you are working towards this autophagy, this waste and recycling process. Again, we go back to poor metabolic health. We go back to this waste and recycling process of getting rid of diseased and disordered organelles, mitochondria, et cetera. And really, this is this is the prime example of why eating less often is so beneficial, really down to a cellular level. So those are some of the key benefits. But things that I also see that women in particular are very focused on, changes in body composition, weight loss. Um, you know, for many individuals, they'll say that, you know, their, their hormones in particular, their sex hormones are better balanced. Oftentimes, if they have an underactive thyroid, you know, that mitochondrial improvement, improvement in ATP, oftentimes they get improvement in their thyroid function. And so understanding that at a cellular level, intermittent fasting can be very beneficial, but always in the context of how are we balancing other hormetic stress in our bodies? And by this, I mean, a lot of women make the assumption that if a little bit of fasting is good, more is better. So the over-fasting, over-exercising, over-restriction of food, I see a lot of women, as an example, doing things like OMAD continuously. And my concern always comes from a place of love that I want to make sure that men and women are properly fueling their bodies. And if you're just eating one meal a day over a span of 30 days, you're going to put yourself at risk for things like sarcopenia, which is muscle loss with aging, which really accelerates after the age of 40. So always with the caveat of, I like variety of fasting schedules. I know you're a fan of that as well. But understand there's kind of a time and a place for different types of advanced techniques, depending on where you are in your cycle, in your life stage, and what other stressors you have going on in your life. Yeah, it's a great summary there. I think about fasting as a stressor, kind of like exercise as a stressor. If you ask anybody on the street, hey, is exercise healthy? Most of them are going to say, yeah, because in our society, 
that is just now a commonly accepted thing that everybody thinks exercise is healthy, but exercise can be unhealthy as well if you do too much of it or if you're not recovering, if you're not sleeping, like you talked about, if you're not recovering, then it's not healthy. In fact, I, I you know, I still remember when, um, you know, when we had twins or really any, any newborn stage and I'm trying to help my wife out and I'm not getting good sleep. And I usually work out six days a week. Like I just, I thrive exercising on a daily basis. And I was trying to do that and, and lifting weights and, and doing intense exercise. And I was not recovering and I overtrained and I had to cut back because the point of the, 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 the stimulus, I was overstimulating my system and I was doing too much exercise. So at that point, exercise became unhealthy for my body because I wasn't resting and recovering. And so I think with fasting, we have to look at it the same way where it is a stressor. We have to respect that fact. It can be used for amazing health benefits, just like you you talked about. However, too much or too aggressively, too quickly, it can be problematic for us. And so we have to understand that. And you talked about the menstrual site, you know, so you start, and I think that the, the hardest demographic that I've seen or the demographic that seems to have the most challenges are the young menstruating females who typically are also adding other hormetic stressors like they exercise regularly, they might have young children or a career, something that's very stressful for them that makes it more challenging to get the rest and recovery that they need. And oftentimes they're the type of personality that's like, oh, fasting is good. I'm going to do it. And then they have you know a bad experience because they go too aggressively or something along those lines. And so let's go into kind of the phases of the menstrual cycle and, and how a woman should approach that when it comes to her nutrition. Yeah, I think this is really critical, especially for women, younger women that are listening or, or watching um, watching our conversation. So number one, understanding that we have two main phases in our menstrual cycle. And I'm going to oversimplify things just to keep it kind of co concise. Um, from the day of menstruation, the day your period starts, um, that is, you know, the start of this follicular phase when you're having, you know, estrogen levels are rising. Um, over time up until ovulation, this is considered to be the follicular phase. This is a time when your body can handle a bit more hormetic stress. So, you know, cold showers, um, intense exercise, maybe lower carbohydrate diets, intermittent fasting as an example. And then after ovulation, this is when you get, this is when your libido will pick up, you know, around ovulation, after ovulation, this is the time frame for progesterone. You'll get this peak in progesterone. It'll ebb and flow during the second two weeks of your cycle. And understanding that progesterone is designed to be a balancing to estrogen. They're, they're designed to work together, but progesterone in particular is a hormone that is encouraging our bodies to slow down. It is encouraging us to do less intense exercise, to do um, to do a, a bit less fasting. This is the time, usually in particular, the five to seven days preceding your menstrual cycle. This is when I say 12 hours of digestive rest. This is when women will say to me, I, I I'm struggling to get to 13 hours of fasting and helping them understand that a lot of this is a byproduct of progesterone and what's going on in the body. This is when sometimes people get sleep disruptions, they have more anxiety or depression, depending on what their progesterone is doing throughout that second phase of the cycle. But helping women understand this is not the time to be fasting until you get your menstrual cycle. You know, for that last week of your cycle, um, you may need more rest. You may need a bit more discretionary healthy carbohydrates. And, and this doesn't mean go eat a pizza. This means maybe you have half a cup sweet potato, or maybe you have some, you know, some squash, or you're having a bit more berries. Um, understanding this is a time when 
yoga, Tai Chi, less intense exercise is really going to work to your benefit um, cyclically. And then when your menstrual cycle starts again, depending on how you feel, and some women don't feel great when they get their cycle or when it starts, but uh, you know, again, we're moving into that follicular phase. So moving into the phase where we're going to get some peaks in estrogen, that's usually when you have more energy, you can probably get away with a little less sleep. I always say estrogen is kind of our superpower when it's properly kind of balanced. Um, and I know the concept of hormone balancing is sometimes very voodoo in the health and wellness space, but I always say it's always in the context of hormones are doing their jobs. So we want to make sure we're optimizing hormones. So understanding that for my cycling women still in their peak fertile years, our bodies, even if we are not choosing to have children at that time in our lives, our bodies are exquisitely attuned to um, stress and to cues from our environment, whether it's food restriction, whether it's um, intensity of exercise, whether it's sleep, et cetera. And that this is why you know, I use the menstrual cycle as a barometer of intensity of physical activities and other activities that we're doing, just like blood pressure, just like pulse. I think about our menstrual cycle as important, if not more important, it's a sign of how healthy our body is. Because if you lose your menstrual cycle in response to intermittent fasting or really intense exercise or food restriction, et cetera, it is a sign that your body has decided it is not an opportune time to become pregnant, even if you don't want to be pregnant. So if, if your menstrual cycle, when you start fasting, maybe it's a little shorter, maybe it's a little longer, that is different. If you lose your menstrual cycle, and this does happen on occasion, and this is why very thin women that are very physically active, I don't encourage them to do a lot of fasting. Maybe it's 12 hours of digestive rest, but you really likely would benefit from three meals a day and not less. However, if you are someone that is insulin resistant, you're diabetic, you know that you have PCOS, uh, which is a byproduct of in insulin resistance and inflammation, helping women understand that they would benefit from a little bit of fasting, especially in that opportune first half of the menstrual cycle. A lot of those women that are insulin resistant also have luteal phase defects. So in many ways, they're already a little progesterone deficient. So they may have very long cycles. And this is where sometimes it can be a little bit nuanced, but helping women understand, especially younger women, there's a time to fast, there's a time not to fast. And a sign that your body is has had too much hormetic stress is losing your menstrual cycle. And that is absolutely positively a sign that you need to back off, probably likely from the exercise intensity also from the fasting, and it could also be you may, may need to liberalize up your diet a little bit. Yeah, another another great summary there, and I, I think also your principle of you've got to be able to sleep well at night. Don't even start something like this, other than maybe a twelve hour overnight, until you get your sleep dialed in. I think that's a really great prerequisite. So once you feel like you're waking up, you're refreshed, you know, and and there's ways that you can track your sleep score and things like that. Um, that's when you're ready to start to, to stack some of these hormetic stressors, or at least introduce one or one or two of these, um, to kind of shock your system and create more resilience, but you got to have that good sleep first. And no, I um, think it's, I think that's so important. And just one thing that I want to dovetail into there is how many women across social media will reach out and say, I have terrible sleep, but I've been trying to fast and my sleep is yeah. worse. And that's just another sign another validation that we have to work on the sleep first. I always say sleep is foundational. This applies to men and women. If your sleep is terrible, please work on the sleep first. Mm. The fasting can wait. You can still do 12, hour, 12 hours of digestive rest. There will still be benefits from it. And you don't win a medal 
if you fast really long and you're not sleeping well. So I, I think it's really important to just kind of continue to, to um, reintroduce that concept to just say, it's okay if right now you're not fasting. If in the context of understanding that there's too much stress going on in your life and your sleep quality has eroded to a point that you have to dial in on that because you won't make good food choices if you're not sleeping well. You're not gonna crave nutrient-dense whole foods. You're going to crave junk. You don't crave, I, the joke is I, you don't ever, you're not going to crave chicken and broccoli. You're very likely going to crave cookies and ice cream and chips because your body's really desperately looking for some way to kind of boost serotonin and you know improve your energy levels, which we know those foods are not going to help that long-term. They're actually gonna give you a little bit of a boost in serotonin. And then ultimately it's going to dysregulate your glucose and your insulin as well. Yeah, that's good. I, I always say that, you know, if you want to practice intermittent fasting, think about it like, okay, I want to, I want to do a 5k. If, if your goal was, I want to do, you know, a 16, eight type of fast. Well, it's kind of like saying, I'm, I want to do a 5k. And if you're not sleeping well at night, it's like you have an ankle injury, right? Before you're going to do a 5k, you got to heal your ankle injury. Then you got to start by walking. And then you start to obviously, you know, jog and you kind of gradually build up and then you're there, right? Before you know it, you're there, but you got to take it one, one step at a time. You don't run the 5k when you've got a, a sprained ankle. Such a good point. And, and I think this is also speaking to if, if the bulk of our population, about seven to 8% of Americans right now are metabolically healthy, it means most of us are not. And so it may take time. As you mentioned, you're preparing for that 5k it may take weeks. It may take four to six weeks to be in a position where you can successfully fast and not feel like you are winded, uh, miserable. You know all those those symptoms that you feel when you're you're out of shape and you're trying to run trying to run that five k. You may experience some of those same pain points. And I always say this is a time to be gentle to our bodies, back things up, go back to the basics, so that you can be successful in this endeavor. I just wanted to interrupt this podcast to tell you about one of my favorite supplements. It's Paleo Valley's grass-fed organ complex. It's like a supercharged multivitamin that allows you to get a full spectrum of traditional superfoods loaded with nutrients into your body faster, easier, and without having to tolerate the taste. You see, grass-fed organ complex contains not one, but three organs. It contains heart, liver, and kidney, which are extremely rich in B vitamins, vitamin A, minerals, coenzyme Q10, key things like selenium. These nutrients support your energy, your mental clarity, your immune health, as well as your skin. And they're found in the most bioavailable form that our ancestors used to get. You see, whenever our ancestors would kill an animal, they would go right for the organ meat. So the most coveted parts because that's really where the life force was. They didn't understand nutrients, but today we know that's where the B vitamins, the CoQ10, the vitamin A, the key minerals are really concentrated in these organs as opposed to the muscle meats. And most of us are just not consuming organ meats on a regular basis, but now you can. You can get grass-fed organ complex, get these vital nutrients, they're freeze-dried to really preserve as much of the nutrients as possible. And you can take this again in, in, in replacement of some sort of a multivitamin that you may have been taking before. Guys, check it out. Go to paleovalley.com forward slash jockers and use the coupon code jockers at checkout to save 15% off today. Yeah. And anybody who's tried to tried to recover from an injury like that realizes if you go too hard too quickly, 
you re-aggravate the injury. So you have to gradually build up. And that's really the way you have to think about it. When your body's overwhelmed with stress or you're not sleeping well, it's like you're injured. And you kind of have to gradually get yourself out of that state, recover, and then start building resilience through doing things like intermittent fasting, like you're talking about. Now, you touched on sleep strategies. Can you give us a rundown of some of the things that you think really help set somebody up for a great night's sleep? Yeah, it's one of my favorite topics to be completely transparent. I think about setting your sleep for success up first thing in the morning, meaning getting light exposure on your retina. So get out for 10 or 15 minutes in the morning. I don't care if you sit outside and have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, or you just drink some warm water or walk your dogs, but getting sunlight on your retinas, on your eyes in the morning will help suppress melatonin, will increase cortisol. Also the connection to nature is really powerful. So if it's warm where you are, put your feet in the ground, like actually your bare feet in the grass, it's actually very beneficial for grounding. So that's number one. I think getting physical activity every single day, and by this, I don't mean you're, you're going to CrossFit five, six days a week. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think strength training, I do think walking, I think movement in general is going to allow us to have a better quality sleep. Not eating three hours before bedtime. Now, every time I say this, there's always someone who'll say, well, I don't get home from work till eight o'clock at night and I need to eat dinner and I, I, I get it. But for most of us, if we're eating too close to bedtime, we have peripheral clocks. We have this super chiasmatic nucleus. We have peripheral clocks in our gut, you know, throughout our gut, our pancreas, uh, telling, giving cues to the penile gland in our brain that helps secrete melatonin. But these clocks also secrete melatonin. And so helping people understand you are in direct opposition to sleep quality if you're eating a big bolus of food at 10 o'clock at night because your body's like, wait a minute, I'm going to suppress melatonin. I'm going to increase cortisol. We're trying to process this bolus of food. So really protecting that two to three hours before your bedtime. I also think about the fact that getting off electronics, we're such a dialed in culture. We, you know, we were on computers all day long. We're on our iPhones, we're on our iPads. We're engaging with the TV and everything else, getting off electronics, if it all need be. And if you can't get off electronics, wearing blue blockers. So blue blockers are going to help. You know, I always say at dusk, that's when we start thinking about it. Right now it's summer. So it makes it a whole lot easier, you know, to put them on until a little bit later, but that will help negate the impact of blue light on our um, melatonin secretion. I also think about relaxation techniques around bedtime. So whether or not that's reading a book, um, soaking in magnesium, and I'm a huge proponent of my magnesium soak is one cup of magnesium flakes, a cup of baking soda, and two tablespoons of borax. Let me be clear, we're not ingesting the borax, but we can soak our feet, we can soak our bodies. It's a great way to potentiate the absorption of magnesium, which is an incredibly relaxing electrolyte. I also think about things like essential oils. If you like lavender or you like, you know, the, the process of smelling things, aromatherapy is very um, helpful, but kind of setting yourself up. This is not the time to engage in like a work project you don't want to do. Don't get in an argument with someone before bed. That can definitely improve, you know, that can definitely impact your sleep quality. And then for me, there's definitely very targeted supplements that I like around bedtime. I always say that, uh, you know, before the age of probably 40, I never thought about supplements for sleep. Now that I'm a middle-aged person, I do think strategically and it, it changes almost every night. But I think about things like L-theanine and GABA and myo-inositol, all things that have good research around them that can help with the relaxation process. I'm not a fan of sleep aids. By this, I mean 
you know, there are prescription medications um, that it's interesting. I was listening to a podcast yesterday talking about how in particular taking sleep aids, prescription sleep medications, let me be really clear about that, mm-hmm. that over time they can actually do the exact opposite of what they're helping to address. So I think, you know, getting into that sleep hygiene, cold, dark room, um, for me, I'm very light sensitive at night. So I wear a sleep mask. Those kinds of things can be very, very helpful. And most of them, cost next to nothing. I think that's the other thing is that we tend to overcomplicate things. Do I have lots of devices? I'm a device person. I like data, Um, but not everyone needs to per se purchase devices to be able to improve sleep quality. I think really honing in on the basics and then adding other things in if necessary or if needed. Um, Certainly now there's whoop bands, there are aura rings. Um, I like to track data, so that doesn't stress me out, but I know I have some patients that it really stresses them out and I'm like, then don't use it. But if you like data and you want to look at metrics, there are lots of ways to do that as well. But I find that those kinds of things for 90% of people will improve things significantly. I do want to dovetail into that and just mention that women that are in perimenopause, in some instances, depending on where they are, you know, early, mid or late, they may benefit from targeted progesterone, oral progesterone therapy. Um, what's really nice about progesterone is it has a mildly sedating effect. It upregulates GABA, which is this key neurotransmitter neurotransmitter. Some women just take it the week before their menstrual cycle. As women are getting farther into perimenopause, they may need it more frequently. Um, to just be thinking that there are ways to address sleep properly. And so as we are losing progesterone heading into this middle age stage, our ovaries are producing less of it. It puts a little strain on the adrenal glands. Progesterone may be part of that sleep support that would be of benefit. So definitely something worth discussing with your healthcare team if that would be appropriate for you. Over um, what I see oftentimes happening is people start having sleep problems. They have more anxiety and depression, especially the week prior to their menstrual cycle. And oftentimes what I see women being prescribed are sleeping pills antidepressants, anti-anxiety agents. And let me be clear, there are individuals who probably do need those things, but more often than not, what they really need is a little bit of progesterone to help support their sleep. Yeah, what a great summary there. And I know for myself, uh, some of the things that have really made a difference, definitely eye mask, I'm very light sensitive, blue light blocking glasses, just dimming all the lights. So first thing, you know, we're putting our kids to bed, eight, 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 thirty, somewhere in that range. It's like um, before we put them to bed, we dim all the lights in the house, so that way there's just not a lot of ambient blue light that impacts your melatonin, brings down your melatonin. And then once we put the kids down, those blue light blocking glasses go on, and uh, that makes a big difference for me for sure. And then keeping the room cool as well, like an overhead fan, a cool room. I just seem to sleep so much better with that. Well, it's funny. We were at a family member's house uh, earlier this year, and and my lovely, wonderful mother-in-law keeps her house very hot and none of us slept well. And so my husband said, I'm not going to ask my mom to turn the thermostat down. What we need to do is we're going to stay in a hotel and then we can keep Mm -hmm. the room as cold as we need it to be. And so I I think that we sometimes have to give ourselves permission to acknowledge that maybe during the day, we don't need our house to be super cold, but at nighttime that can really help with sleep induction. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think about it in nature, it's always colder, no sun, right? It's always going to get cooler at night. So our ancestors were in cooler environments. You know, their body may have adapted to whatever the temperature was during the day, but we had cooler environments at night. So just makes a lot of sense from that perspective. Absolutely. And I I think that for a lot of people, we overcomplicate sleep. We think we have to 
jump through 15 hoops. And I always say like, start with the basics and then, you know, slowly layer things in. I mean, I can probably get away with not doing all of those things every single day, but my sleep quality is always improved upon with doing those things. Like there's never a night I won't have good sleep. If I kind of follow those recommendations and do those things, it really makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. So let's say somebody gets their sleep dialed in. All right. And I want to take, you know, in a sense, three different individuals. So somebody that's in there going through their menstrual cycle. Some, so they're the 30 year old female. Okay. They want to lose 10, 15 pounds. They want to reduce inflammation. Then you've got somebody in perimenopause. Okay. And in a sense, they're 45 years old. Right. And they're wanting to, um, let's say, you know, just improve their brain, right? They, they're having mental fog, right? They want to improve their brain. And then you have another woman that's in her 60s, looking to lose 20 pounds, improve her blood pressure. So let's start and go, you know, progress up in age and um, and and take them and, and kind of walk them through how should they they start with intermittent fasting and what should the progressions look like? Yeah, this is such a great question. And, and so many of the answers are going to be the same. So number one, the very first thing that I encourage people to do is to stop snacking. And the reason why is that it will force you to restructure your macros at your meals, meaning your protein, your fat and carbohydrates. And so for many, many individuals, just stopping snacking is going to be life changing. So that means that you'll have breakfast, lunch and dinner you're not going to snack in between. If you get hungry in between, what that tells you is that you didn't structure your meals properly. And usually it's not enough protein. It's too much of the wrong types of fat, wrong types of fats and too much carbohydrates. So that's number one, we stop snacking. The next thing that we do is we go from dinner to breakfast. So you don't eat at night. Again, for a lot of people, that is life-changing. They come home from work, they're stressed, they sit down, they're mindlessly eating. While they're cooking dinner, they mindlessly eat after dinner, they drink alcohol, we're gonna stop all of that. So going from dinner to breakfast, and that in and of itself could be 13 or 14 hours of not eating. Now, remember what I said earlier that my younger patients, the younger women, where they are in their cycle is going to be very important. However, Every younger woman can do 12 hours of digestive rest. That should be the mainstay for everyone. So for this 30-year-old woman who needs to lose some weight, after we do the nothing from dinner to breakfast, depending on where she is in her cycle. And so, you know, from the time your period starts up until ovulation, that's going to be the time that you can get away with a bit more fasting. I'm still very protective of these women in terms of their fertility. So maybe it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, they fast. And the other days they're doing 12 hours of digestive rest. I have found greater strides with that methodology than having them do consistent fasting every single day, especially even if they have 10 or 20 pounds to lose, if they're physically active, they may genuinely need a bit more food during the day. So that's that's how I typically will tackle that. Again, if their menstrual cycle, a little shorter, a little longer, that first cycle of doing intermittent fasting intermittently, then I, I just kind of watch. I wanna make sure they're getting in a minimum amount of macronutrients of protein. My goal is 100 grams a day. Now, if someone really is insulin resistant, we probably need to buffer you know, that 30 to 40 grams of protein with each meal with pushing down the carbohydrates. It doesn't mean no carbs, but it does mean you're eliminating the processed carbohydrates, pasta, processed breads, things like that. You can enjoy 
um, some of the, well, there's tons of non-starchy vegetables, but I always say it's a ratio of three to one, three vegetables to one piece of fruit. If you already are know that you're insulin resistant or you're prone to it, or your blood sugars are suggested that that's the direction you're heading in, more fibrous vegetables, less fruit, uh, because we love sweet things that's in our culture. So next is the perimenopausal woman. Same things apply. No snacking, start with nothing from breakfast, from dinner to breakfast, slowly opening up that window, conscientious of where you are in your cycle. Again, the follicular phase is when you can get away with it, but the rest of the month, you're doing 12 hours of digestive rest. These women in particular, because they're getting alterations in estrogen levels, and sometimes in perimenopause, we have our highest level of estrogen throughout our entire lifetime, wildly high fluctuations of estrogen in response to less circulating progesterone. It's this loss of balance. It's very much a seesaw. So helping women understand that if we're really working on mental clarity, if we're really working on more brain energy, helping them understand that there are going to be foods that are going to be more beneficial for this, whether it's those healthy fats, MCT oil, helping women understand they need to eat a little bit more protein. They need to keep their blood sugar stabilized, which is certainly going to help with mental clarity. This is where I will oftentimes introduce glucometers or continuous glucose monitors, because I want to know what is your blood sugar response to that meal? What I again find, and this is consistent irrespective of age range, women eat too little protein. They might eat 50 grams total the entire day. And what starts to happen north of 40 is that we have this accelerated muscle loss with aging. This is why weight training, strength training, and protein intake and sleep quality are so important. And so I remind women, as we get older, our protein needs actually increase. Very much like I have teenagers, and their protein needs are through the roof because they're in a massive anabolic phase, if we're not careful, as our follicular stimulating hormone is going up and our estrogen levels are starting to decline in middle to late perimenopause, we start having this catabolic effect on our muscle. And that's why it's so, so important to get that protein intake. So for the brain energy, it's really about blood sugar regulation. It's making sure that they are putting their meals together properly. They're getting enough sleep. They're managing their stress. Those are all going to be very beneficial and then when we're thinking about a 60 plus year old menopausal woman, this is when things get a whole lot easier. We don't have to deal with where we are in our menstrual cycle. That sleep piece is already dialed in. This is when I think we can do a bit of experimentation with longer fasts. We know that if you've got a degree of hypertension or high blood pressure, you already have some latent insulin resistance. Women in middle age are at greater risk of insulin resistance just by virtue of these hormonal changes that are happening. Estrogen is an, is an insulin sensitizing hormone. So if you're not taking hormone replacement therapy, that can definitely impact how insulin sensitive you remain. So for someone like this, it's walking after meals. All the other things apply. Walking after meals, which we know can help buffer your blood sugar response. It'll help, you know, the the your muscles as you're walking are helping to use up this glucose. I always say our muscles are a glucose sponge, a glucose reservoir. The weight training piece, the sleep piece, um, you can get away with a bit longer fast. So maybe that'll be part of what you're doing. Maybe you're alternating, you know, 16 to 18 hours fasted, and then maybe you have a 24 hour fast during the week, really seeing how you feel. But I think that's a good starting point. But all those other pieces that will help with insulin sensitivity, the walking after meals, putting your meals together properly, which means, you know, 30 to 50 grams of protein, non-starchy vegetables, um, I always say carbohydrates, when you've earned them, that doesn't mean that you, you go have a bowl of ice cream. I'm really talking about, you know, um, low glycemic berries, tart apples, citrus fruits, uh, summer squash, because we're in summer, 
those kinds of things can be very beneficial. And then monitoring that blood pressure because that body composition change, I've had women that have just stopped snacking in menopause and have started restructuring their meals that that alone will yield body composition changes, insulin sensitivity will improve. And this is where, again, the glucometers, the continuous glucose monitors can be a great value to monitor that. And then also if someone is, you know, has a desire to change body composition and they're, and they know that the, the high blood pressure is a mitigation of some insulin resistance to a degree, monitoring the blood pressure to see where it's going. Because more often than not, when people change body composition and lose weight, if they're on either lipid lowering medication, diabetes medication, blood pressure medication, they may likely need less or not as much. So checking in with your internist or primary care provider, I think can also be a really helpful, beneficial way to address that. But I always say the continuum with all those life stages is really stop snacking and start restructuring those meals because those two things alone for many people make a big, big difference. Yeah, I completely agree. What a great foundation. And guys, Cynthia, you just given a great interview here, great masterclass on this topic, but you go into even more depth in your intermittent fasting transformation book. Can you give us a quick summary of what people are going to get from that book? Oh, thank you. Yeah. So this is a book that is written. I always say that it's, um, you know, life imitates art. And so through my own journey of getting stuck in perimenopause and being weight loss resistant and, and stubborn fat that I just couldn't get rid of, that's how I came to intermittent fasting. So it's a little bit about my story and how I came to being interested in intermittent fasting. It talks about the physiology. It talks about the hormones, which are so important because once you understand the why, it's much easier to implement tasks. It walks you through a 45-day program called IF45. Um, there's all sorts of coaching throughout. It's not just you know the, the physical things that you need to do, but it's also the mindset, the sleep, the stress management, the nutrition. Um, you'll hear me talk a lot about protein, 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 why that's so important, um, especially as we're getting older and we're more at risk for sarcopenia. And then also exercise and understanding that those four things together have a lot to do with your fasting success. But yeah, it's it's a great opportunity to dive a little bit deeper into these topics and honor our hormones. I feel like we as women tend to apologize a great deal for our hormones, but I always say let's embrace them and not feel like we need to apologize and just understand that most of us have to fast a little bit differently than men and that's okay. Well, thanks again, Cynthia. Great interview today. And guys, check out her book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation. I know you guys are gonna get a lot of value out of that. And we'll see you in a future interview. Be blessed. Well, that's all for this show. And I wanna thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you wanna dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.